This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Luster. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include mature themes, allusions to group sex and female-female sex, and abusive cultural values, including the proactive use of violence, financial coercion, and emotional manipulation by authority figures. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 265. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator of the Metamore City story universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you and tell you what's new with my life and my writing. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 6 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Victor told Daniel about his plan to get them free from the Psy Collective's control over their lives. In his work as the Collective's liaison with the Military Intelligence Directorate, Victor has made a lot of connections to people at all levels of Metamore society. One of these contacts is an androgyne named Evan and Ava Selindi. Selindi is a runner, a freelance spy for hire, and they've hired Victor to help them with a smuggling job. Victor, in turn, is allowed to bring an operative of his choice to help him, and he wants it to be Daniel. As he points out, Daniel is good in a fight, and his psychic healing talent could be useful if things go sideways. More importantly, Victor trusts Daniel. If they successfully complete the mission, Victor will give Daniel 25% of his cut, enough to pay off Daniel's debts to the Collective, so he can walk away and start a new life. After Daniel agreed to the job, he went with Victor to meet with Selindi and get briefed on their upcoming mission. Selindi took an immediate liking to Daniel, especially the androgyne's female half, Ava, who finds Daniel quite handsome. Daniel also made friends with another runner, a teenage street rat named Callie Linder. The team's four other members were all hardened mercenaries, and Daniel gave them a wide berth. Selindi explained that the package they're retrieving is coming into Matthias Skyport tomorrow morning. They will pose as members of Skyport personnel, using doppel charms to impersonate actual employees who are off-duty. Victor and Daniel will ride a cargo tender up to the Skyship, where they will retrieve the client's parcel before it can be scanned in by the real deckhands. Once they are back in the cargo bay, Victor will hand off the package to Callie, who will sneak it out of the port through the ventilation system. Selindi, who has spent the last year infiltrating Skyport management, will help them get through security, and then coordinate the operation from the ground, while the four mercs will provide added security and muscle in the cargo bay, in case they run into opposition. 
The most vulnerable point in the operation will be when the package is in transit from the skyship to the cargo bay. If there's going to be trouble, it will probably happen on board the tender. Selindy dismisses the group to go get some sleep. The mission starts in 12 hours. Making the Cut A novel of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 6 May 25th, 1995, CR Third Level, Valley Central Borough, Metamore City Seven hours prior to Ava Selindy's briefing Brian Summers awoke to the sound of soft, gentle breathing, and the sensation of warm, bare flesh against him on all sides. He smiled, letting out a contented sigh. Waking up nestled amongst three naked women was something he still hadn't quite gotten used to, but he was more than willing to keep practicing until it became second nature. He opened his eyes and looked left to see soft, dark hair and Rebecca's round, angelic face against his shoulder. His arm was wrapped around her, and he lovingly ran his fingers over her belly, swollen with the tiny life that had been growing inside her for the last five months. Sasha's small, light frame was draped atop him, her face against his chest, and her legs entwined with his. Fiona lay nestled against his other side, her lean and muscular body pressed up close beside him her hand resting possessively on Sasha's back. Brian hoped that no one was going to wake up with any cramps. It was a bit of a trick getting all of them on one bed, and they didn't normally try it, but their nightly gestalt had gotten... interesting, and none of them had wanted to leave during the afterglow. Gradually, they had drifted off to sleep, their minds slipping apart from one another, even as their bodies remained entwined. I'm the luckiest man in the world, Brian thought, and not for the first time. Sasha murred happily, pressing her face to his skin and kissing him. And don't you forget it, she said, her thoughts wrapping around his own like a lover's arms. Without disengaging from their bond, Brian reached out to Rebecca. You there, Bex? Rebecca's thoughts spiraled lazily up into the link. There aren't any pink unicorns. Don't be silly. It's just a fairy trying to trick you. Brian chuckled. (laughs) No pink unicorns. Got it. Rebecca's body tensed against Brian's, a flutter of confusion running through her thoughts. She relaxed a moment later, a smile drifting onto her lips. Hey, guys. Sorry, I was dreaming. So we gathered, Sasha said her thoughts amused. She lifted her head, blew a wisp of blonde-white hair out of her eyes, and sent out another tendril of thought that echoed through their bond. "'Wake up, Frizzy,' she said, her tone gentle but insistent. Fiona groaned, and cool streams of thought reluctantly spilled forth out of the deep, dark waters of her mind." the flow carefully controlled, even as it washed through each of them in turn. What time is it? And don't call me that. 
Frezzy, 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 Sasha chanted, her telepathic voice rebounding back and forth through the link like a vibration on a string. Gah! The sound escaped from Fiona's lips unbidden, and a surge of thought and emotion ran through the link. She sat up and grabbed Sasha's hair. Obnoxious wench, come here, she said, pulling the blonde woman's head up and kissing her roughly. Sasha growled hungrily and clambered over Brian to wrap herself around Fiona. She had a little too much momentum as she did so, and together they rolled off the side of the bed, letting out a shared yip of surprise as they landed on the floor. Brian laughed. Everyone okay down there? he asked, though if there had been any serious injury, he certainly would have felt it through the link. Just fine, thanks, Sasha said her mental voice thick with desire. Frizzy broke my fall. There was another cry of mock outrage from Fiona. I'll show you, Frizzy. Spread your legs, wench. By the time I'm done with you, they'll think you put your finger in an electrical socket. The two women disengaged their link to Brian and Rebecca, now fully occupied with other matters. Brian shook his head marveling again at the difference between the placid surface that Fiona showed the world and the powerful currents of emotion that ran underneath. She'd joined the cell out of duty and simple friendship, but by Valena, she was a tigress in bed. Knowing that made her unflappable exterior and keen logical mind seem that much more remarkable, though sometimes Brian wondered why she felt the need to hold back as much as she did. The Gestalt could tell you a lot about a person, but Fiona had some very old and very solid defenses in place around certain parts of herself. Sasha could have wormed her way through them if she'd really wanted to, but it would have been an invasion of privacy and a violation of trust. Fiona would open up when she was ready, and not a day sooner. Rebecca yawned and put an arm around him. I wish we had a teak in our cell, she said her thoughts still sounding muzzy. I'm hungry, but I don't want to get up. Brian reached up and stroked her hair. Sorry, hun. I could run the microwave from here, but I can't put anything in it. I know, she said, pouting. A moment later, she brightened again. Hey, what about magnetism? There's a can of peaches in the cupboard. Brian smiled. Aluminum cans are only paramagnetic, Becca. Even if I could produce a field strong enough to move one all the way from the kitchen, I'd probably pull a steel girder down on us first. Oh. Well, darn. I guess I'd better get up, then. This kid's not going to feed herself. Brian touched her cheek. Stay. I'll bring you breakfast in bed. She grinned, then leaned forward and kissed him. You're so nice to me. You all are. I don't know what I'd do without you guys. There was a shriek of delight from the floor off to Brian's right. He raised an eyebrow. Get a lot more sleep, probably, he said, then climbed out of bed and grabbed his robe. Stepping carefully around Sasha and Fiona, he made his way down the hall to the kitchen. Sunlight was streaming in through the south-facing windows in the adjoining living room, filling the apartment with a warm, golden light. Brian glanced at the clock and saw that it was already afternoon. A really interesting night, he thought wryly. At least Mum can't complain any more that I don't get enough exercise. 
He pulled a carton of eggs out of the fridge and began scrambling them all with a bit of milk in a large glass bowl, then set a large skillet on the stove and began heating it up. He had just poured the eggs into the skillet and was standing by with the spatula when the front door chimed. He frowned and looked back toward the master bedroom. Fiona and Sasha were still going at it, oblivious. He turned back to the eggs, ignoring the chime when it sounded a second time. Whoever it was could come back later. "'I apologize for the intrusion, Brian Summers,' said a cool, grave voice in his mind. "'But this cannot wait.' Brian swallowed nervously. It was one of the elders. He almost asked the elder to just tell him whatever was so damned important from right there. But it would have been rude. Sighing, he turned the heat down to low and put a cover over the skillet, then went over to the front door and slipped outside. The elder was dressed as they usually were, in plain clothes of drab, inconspicuous colors. The older telepath's face was as placid as ever, but the serious gray eyes held deep concern. "'Elder,' Brian said, bowing. Though they were right next to each other, he kept their conversation inside the link, in order to keep the neighbors from overhearing them. "'What can I do for you?' "'Your services are required for a mission of the utmost sensitivity,' the elder said. Brian frowned. "'I'm not a psyop anymore. If you want me to fix your WorldNet server, or clean a virus off your terminal, fine.' Otherwise, I'd thank you to find someone else. There is no one else. We have few electrokineticists of your caliber, and none are available who can match your skills at infiltration. Well, sorry, but I'm not available either, Brian said, his eyes narrowing. Five years of service, and then a breeding cell. That was the deal. Didn't you tell me that being a father was a more important job for me than any single mission the Collective might need me for? It is an important job, the Elder agreed. I do not deny it. Unfortunately, if the present situation is not dealt with, your fatherhood will not matter, because all of us may soon be dead. Brian crossed his arms, glancing briefly at the door and then back at the Elder. Talk fast, he said. Tomorrow morning... The Vampire Syndicate is bringing in a shipment from a biotechnology lab overseas, the Elder said gravely. Past intelligence reports on this facility have indicated that it is involved in the manufacture of nanotech viruses. Brian shifted, suddenly uncomfortable. Nanotech viruses, also called nanopixies or just nips, were magical creatures the size of bacteria that could enter a person's body and carry out any number of possible effects. They fed off of their host's internal mana reserves, multiplied as needed, and then set to work doing whatever their designers had programmed them to do. They were extraordinarily useful little things, and since their creation, scientists had taught them how to perform gene therapy, high-precision body modification, toxic waste cleanup, and countless other functions— but they could also be used to cause tremendous harm, if the researcher didn't mind breaking a dozen laws and international treaties in the process. The exact nature of the technology being imported is unknown, the Elder continued, but we know that the parcel in question was not registered on the ship's manifest, 
which suggests that it is contraband of such a serious nature that the vampires cannot simply pay off the customs agents to look the other way. Given the vampires' animosity toward telepaths, and vice versa, Brian said pointedly, don't play the oppressed minority game with me. The Hive has done plenty to interfere with the local vamps over the years. The Elder smiled thinly. Just so. Given that, the Hive fears that this package may contain weapons components that would threaten the safety of the Collective. We want you to intercept the shipment and ensure that it does not. Brian frowned. He wasn't liking the sound of this at all. If the vamps find out we stole something from them, my life isn't going to be worth lootin' spit. How am I supposed to do what you ask and still protect my family? We will provide you with illusion charms, so that you and your fellow agents can disguise your identities. A non-detection scroll will prevent you from leaving behind any incriminating traces of genetic material. As long as none of you are captured, they will not be able to identify you. Brian put his hands on his hips and lowered his head, thinking. The Hive was obviously serious about this, if they were putting forward these kinds of resources. I want an extra 10,000 marks in my cell's discretionary account, he said, plus access to whatever funds we may need to do the mission itself. It will be done, the Elder promised. The Skyship is docking at Matthias Skyport tomorrow morning at 6.30. Del Matthews and Trey Sumbara have already offered to assist you in your mission. I suggest you contact them immediately. Just like old times, Brian murmured. The elder turned to go, then paused and looked back. Oh yes, one more thing. Brian raised his eyebrows and waited. It is likely that the syndicate has hired highly talented local help to assist them in smuggling the package out of the skyport. You should expect intense opposition, and be prepared to meet it with force. Brian nodded heavily. What level of force are we talking about here? The older telepath looked regretful. Your personal identities will be secure, but it is essential that the vampires be given nothing to tie this matter back to the collective. Their political power is too great— and they could bring great pressure to bear against the Senate if it could be shown that telepaths were responsible for the theft. The Elder's eyes turned hard. Stay unseen as much as possible, but if you are identified as telepaths, you must not let word get back to the Syndicate. Shoot to kill. May 26th We're going up there? Uh Uh-huh. And you've got to come back down through the ventilation system? Yep. Daniel leaned close to the window and stared up, and up, and up at the towers of Matthias Skyport. The complex rose 400 meters, past all four levels of skyways, and then another 100 meters above that. From there, his gaze followed the lines of the spell-hardened steel docking pylons, which ran another 200 meters above the bodies of the towers. Apart from the Majestrix's citadel, which at 1,500 meters was closer to being geography than architecture, it was the tallest structure in Metamore City. Dozens of skyships of varying sizes were moored at the branching network of pylons, 
like birds perched on the ends of an old-fashioned television antenna. The largest ones were 200 meters long and massed 40,000 tons, not including passengers and cargo. Their featherweight enchantments and anti-grav generators were the only things keeping them in the air. He turned to Callie. So, did you take this job because you were suicidal or just crazy? She cast a sideways glance at him, smirking. Afraid of heights, Daniel? How long have you lived in this city? Daniel grimaced. All my life? But there's a point where common sense tells you to run away screaming, and it's a good 300 meters before you reach the top of that thing. Callie shrugged. Meh, it's not that scary. Just don't look down, that's all. He quirked an eyebrow at her. How can you get through the vent shafts if you don't look down? She grinned. I can't, but I'm not the one afraid of falling. It's not the fall that worries me, it's the sudden stop at the end of it. They finished the old joke in unison, and Daniel chuckled, feeling some of the tension ease out of his belly. He'd never been on a run like this before, but he'd done plenty of reckless and stupid things during his years at Westfall, and had come through all right. He could do this. One job, he told himself. One job, and I'll never have to do anything this stupid again. There was a rush of air, and a maglev subway train glided out of the tube behind them and pulled up to the boarding platform. There were only a few dozen people waiting for it. Not many people were up this early on a Sunday, unless they were ecclesiasts going to church, and they quickly filed in to the mostly empty cars. Let's go, Evan said, and they did. Daniel sat next to Callie near the front of the car, with Evan and Victor across from them. The four mercs had spaced themselves out along the length of the car, their movements restless and wary. Ava had introduced them to Daniel last night, but they all used code names to remain anonymous, and he hadn't worked very hard to remember them. It wasn't as if he intended to work with any of them again. Other than Evan, none of the members of their party looked anything like their real selves. The double charms their employer had provided made each of them look like a Skyport employee, whose absence from work was guaranteed. Daniel didn't want to think too much about how those absences might have been guaranteed, or how their ID cards had ended up in Evan's hands. Maybe they all won free weekend vacations out of town, he thought. Yeah, that's how I'd do it. In any event, Daniel and Victor were dressed in drab green coveralls, and looked like a pair of -of run-of-the-mill deck monkeys on their way to work. Victor looked like a bald-headed Arambian, with skin as black as coal, while Daniel was now a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Kitchlander, a role reversal that Daniel had found amusing when they first slipped on the charms. Callie looked like a thirty-something maintenance worker, her eyes sunken and bloodshot, and her skin prematurely weathered by too much tanning in her younger years. Even her voice had been tweaked by the charm. It was hoarse and gravelly, like she'd spent too many years sucking down smoke from cigs or cabs. They sat in silence during the ten-minute ride from the subway station to the skyport. Daniel spent the time running through the plan in his mind, trying to envision the maps they'd studied last night and the routes they would follow for getting in and out. Assuming nothing goes wrong, the cynical part of his brain noted. Right, 
and after that we'll go skiing in the sixth hell. There was a soft thump as they passed through one of the spell fields that kept the subway tubes down to one-third of normal atmospheric pressure, and the sound of air resistance against the body of the maglev train increased substantially. The train began to slow, and the passengers gathered their belongings and got to their feet. Matthias Skyport, South Entrance, a pleasant female voice said from the loudspeakers. Please watch your step when exiting the train. The Skyport subway terminal was a major interchange point for four of the city's subway lines, and it was much fancier than the small local station where they had boarded the train. Many of the floors and supporting pillars were marble, and the walls were covered with mosaics of skyships and famous Metamore City landmarks. Figment generators projected three-dimensional illusions, hawking merchandise or advertising exotic destinations, accompanied by recorded audio tracks that enthusiastically described what the illusions were trying to sell you. Here and there, street musicians sat with their instrument cases open in front of them, playing guitars or flutes or tribal drums or bazookis for anyone who would stop to listen to them. On the upper levels, there were food vendors and shops set into the walls of the terminal, a full-blown shopping mall ready and willing to help separate passing travelers from their money, even if they were just here to catch a connecting train. Even early on a Sunday morning, this terminal was a beehive of activity, and Daniel and the rest of his team moved unnoticed through the crowds. The employees' entrance was located at the end of an unmarked hallway near the main entrance, where hundreds of people waited in line to pass through the security checkpoints from the subway station to the Skyport proper. Security was tight, and long lines of bored and irritated people waited to have their luggage and selves inspected, for threats both magical and mundane. The Empire had been having a problem lately with terrorist attacks from Shi partisans, who held the prophet Marai Hindana responsible for the devastation of their home plane of the Dreamlands. The fairy lords had targeted the Empire as an outlet for their frustration because the ageless Marai lived at the Citadel with the Majestrix. Their demands were that either Kaya must exile her from Metamore, at which point she would certainly be targeted for assassination, or she must do something about the armies of Celestials and Fiends who had turned the Dreamlands into an eternal battleground for their great war. Majestrix Kaya had refused to back down on her support of the Prophet, and thus far no good solution to the Dreamlands problem had presented itself. Imperial negotiators had been trying for years to compromise with the Shi by offering them land on the material plane, but thus far the two sides had been unable to agree on what was acceptable compensation for the loss of the infinite Dreamlands. The last that Daniel had heard was that the Shi were demanding all of Sathmore west of the mountains, and the odds of that happening were only slightly better than the odds of him getting through the upcoming run without being shot at. In contrast to the public lines, there were only a few people ahead of them at the security checkpoint for the employee entrance. Evan took the lead here, walking well ahead of the others and greeting the guards amiably as he approached. The guard on the near side of the checkpoint scanned his ID card, which caused the light on his terminal to flash green. 
He then waved Evan through a series of arches that housed the checkpoint's array of metal detectors and spell sensors, which gave all clear indicators as Evan passed under them. Another guard waited on the far side of the checkpoint with a sensor wand, though he showed no intention of using it on Evan, since he had passed through the machines without incident. At this point, Evan shifted to Ava, who leaned in close to the guard and began chatting with him in a distinctly friendly manner. Within seconds, he was so thoroughly wrapped around her finger that Daniel doubted he could remember his own name. While Ava was doing her best to persuade the second guard that he might have to strip-search her in the interests of national security, the first guard reached behind his computer terminal and flipped a small hidden switch. He winked at Daniel and the others, scanning each of their cards in turn and sending them through the now-disabled detectors. The second guard never took his eyes off of Ava for even a moment. Daniel, Victor, Callie, and the Mercs continued down the hallway and up a short flight of steps to a small lobby with four lifts. They took the first empty one on the express side and began the long journey up to the main cargo bays. We're not waiting for Ava? Daniel asked. Victor smirked. Don't worry about her. Once she finishes with that guard, she'll go to her post and start running interference for us. The only way you'll see her again today is if something goes wrong. Oh. Daniel looked up at the LED display above the lift doors. As he watched the numbers slowly tick their way upward, he hoped that Ava was as good at getting them out of trouble as she was at getting them into it. And that's the end of Chapter 6. Come back next time, when Brian's team meets up at the Skyport and makes their plan to steal the package. Rebecca Solnit said, To write is to carve a new path through the terrain of the imagination, or to point out new features on a familiar route. To read is to travel through that terrain with the author as a guide, a guide one might not always agree with or trust, but who can at least be counted on to take one somewhere. So grab your camera and some sturdy hiking boots, and let's go on an adventure together. It's time for the Weekly Writing Report. This update covers the week of November 28th through December 4th. I wrote 7,082 words this week, over the course of 9.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 766 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 231 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of November, I wrote a total of 21,861 words in 26 days, averaging 841 words per day. That ranks 16th out of 67 months since I started this podcast. I spent 32.25 hours writing in November. Compared to October, my word count increased by 12%, and my writing time increased by 6%. I made excellent progress this week on Honor Bound, working on the novel at least a little every day this week. I'm now in the third act, 
And as is often the case, my writing has brought me to a rather different place from what I'd first imagined when I outlined this book. I've compensated for that this week by doing some pre-writing. When I come to the end of a chapter, I take a few minutes to jot down notes about what I think is going to happen in the next chapter. That way, when I come back from my next writing session, I can jump right in and get to work, instead of rereading the last scene and trying to remember where I was going. The story still doesn't end up exactly where I pictured in the pre-writing, but it's a lot closer than when I try to plot out the whole rest of the book. Pre-writing has also been helpful because it primes my brain to think about the story when I'm not at the writing desk. This allows me to better envision the different possible paths that the story might take. I get some of my best writing ideas when I'm in the shower, for instance, or driving to and from work. I'm now in Chapter 34 and the manuscript is over 93,000 words. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.